0: Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall.
1: I'm John Glazer.
0: Today, we turn to a topic long overdue for an appearance on power problems, and that is the threat of cyber conflict, or as I somewhat informally like to say, cyber stuff. Uh, Great power competition has always made use of the most advanced technologies of the day, And it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that increasingly nation states are turning to cyber operations to carry out their foreign and security policies. Cyber operations are still new enough, though, that I don't think we have yet reached consensus about the threat they pose or what the United States should do about it. And making these issues all the more complex is the fact that states aren't the only ones conducting cyber operations with global impact. Thanks to the economics and digital nature of the game, individuals and small groups now have the ability to carry out missions with major consequences. Joining us today to talk about where the cyber conversation is, and in particular, the role of non-state actors, is Tim Maher. Tim is the co-director of the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the author of a fantastic book, Cyber Mercenaries, The State, Hackers, and Power. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. As always, we'll start with a quick discussion of some recent news, Um, and I think we have to start in New Zealand, which suffered a horrendous terrorist attack over the past weekend, uh, About 50 people killed at at two different mosques by a neo-Nazi, depending on how you describe this guy, white supremacist, Um, an attack that I would note on the cyber side of things, he videotaped with a GoPro camera and then uploaded to the internet where, despite the best efforts of YouTube at all, millions of people uh, viewed this video. Um, What does this do or what should it do to debates about uh, gun control, the internet, and, and so on?
2: I think in New Zealand, it's actually an interesting uh, case where it's one of the countries where uh, gun laws allow people to have a gun without it necessarily being uh, uh, registered. And uh, it was one of the few countries in the world that I think still has this uh, very uh, specific uh, legal environment. And one of the first things the prime minister said that was that they would take a hard look at that. Um, And I think the second piece was that it was actually not a New Zealand citizen, but it was actually somebody from Australia who had traveled to New Zealand, uh, which shows just how you also that people can travel to your country and and pursue these acts, uh, these horrific acts. Um, so those were two, two pieces that I took away from New Zealand, which, by the way, we traveled to over the holidays on vacation. And if you can think of one of the most peaceful places on earth, it's probably New Zealand. So it was really shocking to see this news.
1: Yeah, I mean, t- to me, uh, what struck me is what struck a lot of people. It's not a terribly novel point, but the extent to which we've seen uh, lots of white nationalist, neo-Nazi, right-wing kinds of terror. Uh, and the public and uh, the policymakers I don't think have been able to make sense out of uh, what that threat is versus the threat from you know, traditional uh, terrorism in the sense that we think of in post 9-11, mu- Muslim terrorism essentially. Um, we devote enormous resources. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars if you count our overseas adventures on mitigating this exceedingly low probability threat of uh, Islamic terrorism here on US soil. And there's no comparable set of uh, uh, policy uh, uh, formations or impetus towards mitigating uh, the threat from uh, these kinds of right-wing terrorist acts and I don't think that we should yeah, have massive goodness, programs right? yeah. to yeah mitigate that threat because it is a relatively minor one, and so is terrorism. And in fact, by some of the numbers, it seems it's a much less uh, imminent threat than than the right wing extremists. So uh, that that seems to me that that's a pathway for some policymakers to go. Uh, uh, we should we should take these facts, I think, and uh, have it inform policy.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think. Um- I think what I heard New Zealand, I mean, they sort of jumped, it's sort of interesting to watch their their debate and policy change process rel- compared to, you know, what happens after every school shooting or mass shooting in the United States, where you have the instant polarization, complete freeze and no change. It looks like things are going to change in, in New Zealand pretty quickly. Um, I think one thing that they're doing is just banning Australians because that seems like it's a pretty straight shot to improving <laughs> things in New Zealand, but uh, we'll see how that goes. I, you know, open border crazies and stuff. But anyway. uh, Okay. So um, turning to Saudi Arabia um, for a completely different kettle of fish, Um, it turns out unsurprisingly that Khashoggi was not the uh, only victim of Mohammed bin Salman's um, recent campaign of of oppression and um, repression. Uh, The New York Times recently had what I thought was a horrifying piece about uh, his efforts uh, using the same team that, that killed Khashoggi to uh, surveil, uh, kidnap, torture all sorts of dissidents, including people that, I mean, barely qualify as, as dissidents. I mean, we're pretty minor stuff. Um, what the heck is going on in Saudi Arabia? I
2: think that's a great question, because as you just alluded to, some of the people that were targeted don't really fall into this narrative of, you have uh, him assuming power in Saudi Arabia. He tries to consolidate power, and he tries to send a signal internally within the system. So it really begs the question, what is he thinking? And does he fall into the category of being a nutcase, as some people and members of Congress have argued, uh, or is there clearly a strategy behind it? Um, I find it uh, just really appalling. Um, and it begs also the question of how, how does he envision Saudi Arabia to play its role on the world stage, um, Saudi Arabia is hosting the G20 next year. Uh, so everybody will just be very much focused on Saudi Arabia. So from a, from a perspective of being a leader in the world, one of the 20 largest economies and the responsibility that comes with it, clearly uh, there's a clear tension and things are at odds with how he's thinking about the direction he wants to take the country in.
1: I'm struck by how much US policy towards Saudi Arabia is a result of habit and inertia as opposed to some kind of uh, rational objective evaluation of precisely what Saudi Arabia does for US interests. Uh, This is one of the most regressive authoritarian regimes in the world. uh, And our close relationship with them gives the lie to what the United States goes around the world saying all the time, which is that we are on the side of goodness and benevolence and freedom and democracy. And therefore, our our heavily expansive and activist foreign policy is justified because that's, that's where we're coming from. Uh, we're participating in one of the most acute humanitarian crises uh, in Yemen. Uh, the Saudi bombing campaign is a disaster. And as you say, they have a the kind of government that just goes on rampages to target dissidents, cutting them up with bone saws or or worse, and um, it's just long past time for us to reevaluate precisely why we need to be uh, in Saudi Arabia's good graces, why they need to uh, be supported by us. Uh, the oil argument, I think, is dated and doesn't doesn't cut it. Uh, the oil will flow, believe me. Uh, uh, because it has to get to market uh, for that regime to even survive um, so uh, yeah th- this this latest news uh, is just uh, uh, the cherry on on the sunday uh for me in in terms of the mounting evidence that this relationship is is long long past uh, a reevaluation
0: yeah i if you wrote you know a paragraph without naming. The, the two countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, just wrote a sort of a, a brief, you know, Tinder profile. You you wouldn't swipe right on either of those, right? I mean, this is the, – th- there's nothing about Saudi Arabia that today or even in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, frankly. I mean, you know, show some cooperation the war on terror, wh- whatever. Um nothing to suggest that we'd prefer that country to have an outsized influence in the Middle East relative to Iran. I'm sorry. They're both tied for last. I mean, that, that, I just don't see it. Um, now, do you want to balance them off each other? Fine. But why play favorites? Why not like the Iran-Iraq war? Why not just sort of help both of them to make each other's life miserable a little bit? You know, I mean, ah, it's a, it's a nightmare. Okay. One more nightmare to talk about. Um, let's talk about, <laughs> this news is so joyful. Uh, let's talk about what the U S is doing in Somalia, uh, namely dropping a lot more bombs, um, in an attempt to degrade or destroy or whatever they're calling it. Um, the Al Qaeda affiliated terrorist group, Al Shabaab. Um, the U S has been bombing this group since 2007. Um, but airstrikes have recently tripled under Trump's directions. Um, and, you know, not that this is the direct cause, but now there are about 2 million people displaced within Somalia, you know, some number of hundreds of thousands of them because of the U.S. airstrikes, in addition to all the other violence there. Um, and, you know, al-Shabaab has been active recently. Uh, there was a, an attack they carried out in Kenya, that an upscale hotel and shopping complex that killed a bunch of people. So that might be sort of a approximate explanation for, for an increase, but... If we're still bombing them 10, 12 years later, I mean, what's the point? What are we doing?
2: I have no answers, but uh, <laughs> good I answer. think that, <laughs> uh, what I find fascinating about the story is that as we've transitioned in the last 18, 12 to 18 months, more and more to focus on this uh, revival of great power politics, that this story highlights that we can't forget about the terrorist threat and the transnational threats that haven't gone away. We are living at the same time in the 1990s and now in the 21st century replay of a cold war, except for it's no longer just two, but potentially three or four parties involved. Uh, And we have to find a way of how we manage them uh, simultaneously. Um, And I think that puts a huge strain on, on the Pentagon, but also the US government. And how do we think about this more comprehensively? Because to your point... It's clear that the military strategy in and of itself is not working. Uh, the refugee, dis- the displacement of people and potential refugee flows will have an impact on the region. And if you look at uh, Ethiopia or Terer, um those are clearly not... Um, areas where we we want further instability. Tanzania is already one of the uh, hosts of the largest refugee populations in the world. Um, There's always uh, the question of how much more can they take on. So um, it's clearly something that we can't forget as we focus on China and Russia and the revival of great power politics. But unfortunately, I don't have the silver bullet for this problem, as you you say, we've been trying to tackle for several years.
1: It seems to me that uh, this entire city believes that the president has king-like authority to bomb whatever country he wants at his own whim uh, for whatever reason he wants without lending itself to a public debate or to say the constitution, which requires that uh, the president receive uh, authorization from Congress before engaging in hostilities abroad, Um, these strikes have no authority. No legal authority whatsoever. They're illegal. It's a, these are criminal acts, both on international law and domestic U.S. law. Yeah, I was re- listening to a, a recently uh, interview with uh, uh, Bronwyn Bruton uh, of the Atlantic Council, who's who's uh, a former uh, Power Problems guest. Um, And she is an expert in this area, and she points out that the Shabaab was essentially created to resist the imposition of a U.S.-backed government in Somalia following the Ethiopian invasion in 2006, which had U.S. support. Um, They have primarily local concerns. Like you said, they've attacked uh, Kenya and uh, I think Uganda as well, Ethiopia. Um, But they've never directly attacked U.S. interests. It's true that in 2012, they... um, signed up with al qaeda but uh these are it's a few thousand people uh roving militants on the horn of africa the notion that they present a direct enough threat to the to us security and us interests to be engaging in a uh an unauthorized war which is killing civilians and doing other kinds of damage and producing other kinds of blowback is so absurd as to be laughable. It's a sickness of this city that that kind of thing is looked at as normal and acceptable. And we don't ask questions like, do you think you should get congressional authority? What type of threat does this group actually pose? Are we causing more problems by involving ourselves in this kind of depth? Um, So yeah, this is uh, unfortunately not going to get a lot of attention in the 2020 campaign. It's not something that people run on or against, but it does happen. And that's unfortunate because I think more attention on it is needed.
0: Yeah. No, I'm, I'll co-sign everything you just said. And I, I think <clears throat> the thing that's, that's really crazy to me, I guess, uh, in addition is, and we did talk about this with Bronwyn last year on the podcast, uh, is that we only seem to have one button, which is a military button. We, I mean, is real, Is that really the only thing we could be doing? If you think stability in the Horn of Africa is important, fine. You know, Is it really directly a, a problem for US national security? No. Would it be nice for the residents of the Horn of Africa to have stable? Re- yes. Okay. So if we're nice people and we want to help, I don't see how bombing is helping.
1: Yeah. Like, how about the, asking the question, are we actually creating we, stability? Right. Mm, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think, think so.
0: Right. I don't think you could argue that. So I I would like to see some other um, options and you know, maybe a little smidge of public debate about what those might look like and whether the American public actually is in favor of them because, you know, rightly or wrongly, when you ask the American public whether they'd like to spend a few more billion on other people's bridges, tunnels, and stability rather than their own, they mostly say, no, thank you. And I don't say the public is always right about these things, but they should be taken into consideration. And as John points out, that we never have any debate about this, which means- I don't think we're going about it quite the right way. Okay. Let's put a pin in the news for now. Uh, And let's turn to our main topic, and and that is uh, cyber threats, cyber proxies. Um, But, Tim, before we talk about your book, um, I wonder if you could just sort of set the table for us a little bit uh, because cyber covers such a big sort of waterfront these days. We say cyber threats and, you know, cyber war, cyber espionage, I mean, it covers so many things. Maybe you could just sort of um, tell us, you know, where do you see the cyber threat today? How do you think of it? Um, and, you know, what sorts of th- cyber threats are really the most worrisome things we should be thinking about dealing with?
2: Yeah, I'm glad that we're shifting from the news to such an uplifting topic <laughs> like uh, cyber conflict and cyber, cyber security. Um, The way I think about it uh, today, and especially given the evolution of the last 10 years, is that the threat landscape has gotten a lot more complex and complicated. Uh, One good um, fact to bear in mind is that James Clapper testified in 2017 and pointed out that the number of state actors who are developing offensive capabilities is now at over 30. This was in 2017 only a few, a few years prior, say six, seven years, most experts in the field would have said there are six states that have offensive capability. So it's your usual suspects, China, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea. Um, you can also count Israel and the US into that group. So we've gone from within a couple of years half a dozen to now over 30 countries that are developing offensive capabilities. So that's the first, I think, important fact that the number of actors are increasing, the states are actively uh, developing these capabilities. And then as if we look back to 2017, uh, you may remember the the WannaCry and NotPetya malware that just uh, impacted computers around the world had a huge economic impact each costing uh, roughly 10 billion dollars 10 billion dollars uh, in economic uh, damage to several countries around the world um we are also seeing an evolution in with respect to the harm they're causing more economic harm in the case of WannaCry we also for the first time kind of th- crossed the threshold where people's health and people's lives were put at risk because in the UK, the national health system had to turn patients away for non-essential procedures because their computers weren't working. So not only do we see an increase in the number of states wanting to do this, we're also seeing a growing severity in the impact some of this malware is having. Um, So even though it's been now uh, more or less close to 10 years since Dick Clark read this book Cyber War, which many people criticize as being alarmist and the sky is falling, 10 years on we're in a situation where the situation hasn't gotten better. It's actually gotten worse in terms of the impact this is having uh, and the number of actors that are active Uh, trying to exploit this.
0: It sounds to me like the bigger, or or at least the more pervasive threat is at this sort of cyber uh, security level rather than a cyber conflict sort of level.
2: Yeah, I think the discussion about cyber war and cyber conflict has given way, especially in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine, the five day war in Georgia, uh, what we're seeing in Syria. To a realization that the way that at least states are going to use this primarily in in wartime is going to be alongside all of their conventional tools. It's going to be an enabler, it's going to be used for disruption, it's going to be used for intelligence collection to enable other operations. Uh, And the way that the Russian military has been using this in both Ukraine and I think partly in in Syria as well, uh, is a fascinating case study for how quickly a state, in this case Russia has learned to integrate these different tools. Um, But then you also have some countries that short of armed conflict, Bombs dropping, things exploding, uh, but just short of that, below the threshold where we're, it's not really peacetime anymore because clearly stuff's going on. We're not at war yet, um, but states are using uh, cyber tools to, uh, you know, to poke, to annoy, sometimes disrupt. Uh, and frankly, occasionally things may unintentionally get out of hand and then you have a worldwide kind of impact. Uh, and I think not. Uh, wanna cry, not petya raised some interesting questions: whether they were intended to have such a worldwide impact, or whether it got out of the box and uh, got out into the wild and just had this impact.
0: Yeah, yeah. For a, for a lot of years, I, I I found the hyperbole like almost unmanageably awful. And I think the article for me that, that I I assign in class just, you know, is Thomas Ridd's why cyber war will not occur. And, And it's basically, it's just sort of a new version of sabotage, espionage, um, crime, you know, things like that. But, but, but amplified because it's got this reach that you don't have with just people walking around, you know, so it's, it's a new, it's a new game. All right. So let's, let's turn to the book and, and I thought this was really, uh, an interesting take because you argue that um, a lot of the focus on cyber has been too nation state centric. Um, and so maybe you could just start by telling us what do you mean by that and why did you write the book?
2: Yeah, so... Let me take you back to 2013, which is when I actually started writing the book, so it took me a little longer than I initially thought it would take to write a book, but uh, here we are. 2013, we were still in the midst of this cyber war debate that you just alluded to, with Thomas Ridd having written this book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, in response to Dick Clark's book, Cyber War. And a lot of that was, as you just mentioned, very state-centric. It superimposed this notion of great power politics, states, are we in a cyber war? And that was very much the discussion within the Beltway in Washington, D.C. and um, driven by by national security officials. When you talk to the hacker community at the time or people in the law enforcement community and uh, the FBI or others, you would actually come across a lot of data and evidence that suggests that environment is actually a lot murkier, that states aren't just using their military or intelligence agencies for these type of operations, but that they're actively relying on uh, hackers that are not part of the, uh, the state, that don't wear a uniform, that don't work at their respective intelligence agencies, and are using them for operations. Um, for different reasons, part of it is plausible deniability, lack of capabilities. So I was driven to write this book because the debate we were in in 2013 clearly seemed to miss the picture of what is ac- actually happening, which has significant policy implications as well, right? if If all of the actors are part of the state, then how you try to deter them to do certain things is a completely different story than if these hackers aren't actually part of, don't wear uniform and somehow have these detached uh, uh, relationships. Um, now, the book came out in early 2018. Uh, uh, so post-2016 uh, election, uh, uh, the Russian uh, intelligence community's assessment, uh, by that time, proxies were kind of like in the in the mainstream uh, debate. Um, But what I think the book does for the first time is provide some very detailed case studies that illustrate how these relationships actually work um, that help to substitute the debate we've been having in the public about how some states actually behave in this space.
1: Can you maybe run through one or two of those case studies? Uh, uh, You know, what, what are the characteristics of these proxies? And is there a gradient? I mean, are there... Examples where they're really independent and uh, you know fully, as you say, detached from the state and more examples where they're really just kind of closer without the badge?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question, especially because proxy as a term is so vaguely defined often, and, and people associate different things with it. And the title of the book is Cyber Mercenaries, which also gets the publisher thought it, it, it uh, it's more controversial, it would uh, help sell the book, I'm not sure that's true. But uh, the rest of the book talks about proxies rather than mercenaries. Um, so a, a great case study or example is the, what remains the largest data breach in history uh, today, which is the Yahoo data breach. Uh, Three billion email uh, accounts that were compromised as part of the breach. And my, my favorite uh, proxy that I came across as part of my research is uh, uh, a young man called uh, Karim Baratov. Uh, he's actually a Canadian citizen, but was part of an operation spearheaded by two Russian intelligence officers uh, uh, who are part of the FSB. And they recruited this, uh, at the time, 21-year-old Baratov um, to engage in this Yahoo data breach. They paid him on a commission basis for email accounts he was able to gain access to. And Baratov, living in Canada, made the mistake of posting photos of his luxury cars that he had leased on social media, uh, smoking a cigar and uh, in a like, Canadian suburbia, essentially. Uh, now, last time I checked in Canadian suburbia, that's not a, a, a regular site. So uh, I think it helped law enforcement quite a bit that, in this case, social media wasn't used to spread hate or or some terrorist video, but in this case- uh, To toasting. self-incriminate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, or
0: selfie-incriminate. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I can coin a nice. term. Very well
2: done. <laughs> uh, you heard it here first on this podcast. Um, and he's actually now in jail. So uh, this is actually an interesting example of an indictment that the U.S. government unsealed that led to the, to an arrest of somebody who was involved in an operation. And Baratov was working uh, was part of this operation that also included one of the FBI's most wanted cyber criminals uh, by the name of Belen, who had been arrested in Europe for cyber crime that he he was wanted for, was then let out of prison in this European country as they were trying to figure out whether they would extradite him to the U.S. or not, and as he was being released, managed to get back to Russia and then was under the protection of the Russian state because the Russian government doesn't extradite Russian uh, citizens. Upon his return to Russia, he was essentially recruited by the two Russian intelligence officers, and he was the one who gained access to the Yahoo email accounts on uh, uh, first in January of 2014. So you have essentially four individuals, two Russian intelligence officers, one most wanted FBI cyber criminal, and one 21-year-old Canadian citizen that make up this team that is responsible for the largest data breach in history. Um, and the way it worked was the two Russian intelligence officer would allow the criminal to conduct criminal activity on the side and make money in addition to hacking Yahoo. And then the 22-year-old, 21-year-old uh, was paid on a commission basis. So it's essentially your equivalent of the good old privateering on the high seas two, 300 years ago, and it's the digital equivalent of that uh, in the modern world. Um, in this case, not only were 3 billion email accounts hacked, but it actually led to, we can put a tr- price tag on this data breach because Yahoo was in the process of being uh, taken over by Verizon. They'd already agreed on a takeover deal the news became public that Yahoo had been breached and Verizon went back and required a $300 million decrease in the deal that they negotiated. So if you want to steal 3 billion email accounts, the price tag currently is $300 million. We'll see whether <laughs> that will increase or decrease over time because I'm sure it wasn't the
1: last. A quick time. follow-up question. Uh, with the Yahoo breach, and I'm thinking of examples like the OPM uh, breach. So W- w- typically in those kinds of situations when people's personal information is taken or revealed what are the what are the consequences of that to the individuals i mean uh, and what are the uh, mitigation strategies that the companies try to pursue in order to ease whatever pain and consequences result from the hack
2: Yeah, so usually data breaches are carried out by criminal actors, in which case they're unlikely to actually target specific individuals, but they will send out a lot of spam emails because even if only 0.1% of the people who receive the spam will click on something, they're still making a lot of money. So if it's a criminal actor and it's a data breach, they may go after anybody because even a tiny fraction of those who click will make the money. So in those circumstances, the Equifax uh, breach It's really important for people to actually take advantage of the protections that are offered in terms of credit monitoring and other just basic cyber hygiene. If you don't use two-factor authentication yet for your bank accounts or your email accounts, now is definitely the time uh, to do that. In the Yahoo case, it's actually a slightly different story because you had the Russian intelligence uh, uh, unit involved. And the way the operation was constructed was that after the bell and the cyber criminal first gained access to the 3 billion email accounts, the Russian intelligence officers had specific people of interest that they wanted more information on. And they realized that they had email accounts that were not Yahoo email accounts, but were other email accounts with other email providers. And that's where the 21-year-old enters the picture, because he was given the task to then try to gain access to the other email accounts. Now, as far as uh, the the indictment, uh, if I remember correctly, it doesn't go into, I don't think he actually hacked them, but it was more kind of uh, probably guessing passwords and hoping that people would use the same password across email accounts. And he was paid money uh, based on that. Um, But it showed that there was clearly an intent to go after some specific people and learn more about them. So in that case, it was a targeted operation. Fascinating.
0: Yeah. All right. So, but, but those were sort of that, that's an example of the kind of the, uh, the contractor version now, John was also getting it. So, but there are also proxies who are a little bit more, um, kind of closer to the team, I guess.
2: Yeah. And you have essentially the the book talks about a typology in different categories of proxy actors differentiating between individuals who may be politically motivated or hacking for hire over to companies where they have a business model, they have products that they sell. In the Khashoggi case, we saw one company whose whose product was used to actually spy uh, on Khashoggi uh, that was used by the Saudi Arabians. Um, And the the politically motivated ones are one of the most interesting cases, actually, where uh, both in with respect to Iran and with respect to China, you see this nexus between the governments in the Iranian case that was working very closely with a group of four mid-20 Iranians who may have been students at one of the technical universities um, that actually helped the, uh, in this case, three individuals associated with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to launch massive distributed denial of service attacks against against US banks in 2012- 2013. so a distributed denial of service attack is when you flood a system with so many pings and requests that the system can't operate normally anymore and uh, the, the they started actually with the th- these three guys associated with the Islamic Re- Revolutionary Guard Corps and the DDoS attacks weren't really like significant like they barely made it, it, it showed up on the radar. It wasn't until they they worked with these other uh, four individuals that they turned the DDoS attack into a massive uh, to a massive scale. The New York Times uh, paraphrased it as uh, it turned uh, a few yapping Chihuahuas into fire breathing gorillas uh, in terms of the DDoS attack scale. Um, but it's similar to what we saw in the '70s, uh, the embassy takeover politically active students who were out in the streets, who took over the US Embassy at the time. And I think we're essentially seeing the equivalent now in the digital sphere, where clearly you still have a very politically active uh, part of the society that's more than willing to help Tehran achieve its political objective. And it's not, uh, in this case, it's unclear what the, the trade-off involved is. Some people have suggested that they may have gotten credit for their military service uh, in, in return for uh, being part of this operation. Um, but we saw in the in the Chinese case, um, in the early 2000s uh, and the late 1990s, you had these tens of thousands of politically active hacktivists, so uh, 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 Hacker p- plus political um, activists, hacktivists um, who were very active. You had the honker Union, you had different kinds of hacktivist groups who would conduct small scale DDoS attacks, web defacements when there was a spat between China and Indonesia. And for the first couple of years, Beijing wouldn't do anything. They would just tolerate them, very similar to how in the counterterrorism. Uh, literature. We have discussions about uh, governments providing safe havens and territories that terrorists could use, and the governments would use would know that they are present on the territory, but they wouldn't intervene. They would kind of turn a blind eye to them. And Beijing did that for quite a while, uh, five seven years, and then they slowly started changing tack by issuing statements, public statements, where they said, "Please stop this." Hacking is not uh, legal in in China, it's forbidden, uh, and this is not helping the Chinese government. Um, They then also had a crackdown, they arrested a couple of hackers, and by the mid-2000s, you start seeing this hacktivist group disappear, and more or less Beijing reasserting its control uh, creating information warfare militias throughout the PLA. and I think nobody, especially under Xi Jinping's rule uh, has any doubt anymore that uh, what will happen what happens in China it can be controlled by Beijing if Beijing wants to right
0: we're in charge of web defacement, dang it yeah <laughs> I, I see that so it, you know it's interesting because it, it you know the the notion that there are politically motivated you know hackers out there it's not not a new thought but but the discussion of of proxies I mean one of the sort of analog versions of of a proxy concern is the notion that you know states will someday give a nuclear weapon or some other form of wmd to a terrorist group. These groups sound like sort of the digital version, right? The digital terrorist group where the state says, "Well, we need some plausible deniability, so we're going to we're going to tell group x over here who is shadowy and no one really knows who they are to go do terrible things on our behalf." Is that is that what one of the things you're seeing?
2: I think that's something where actually future analyses will uh, get into a more granular level of why certain actors are using proxies, because right now we see the full spectrum. We see what you just alluded to, some actors using proxies to have plausible deniability to kind of like, if they are discovered, to let them burn and uh, not have any political uh, costs associated with it. But there are also a couple of cases that suggest that the reason why some of these actors are being used is because the state itself doesn't have the capability yet. And especially in the Iranian case, where when, remember, the the DDoS attack against US banks happened in 2012. This was two years after Stuxnet became publicly known. And a lot of people in the community thought, okay, Iran will eventually get to the level that they will have a capa- capability to retaliate. But nobody expected that, I think, within a two-year time horizon. So we've kind of gone really quickly, also in the North Korean case a surprise moment of how quickly some of these actors have have sprung up. And part of the reason, I believe, is because they have been able to rely on actors that aren't part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, aren't part of the military, but it's these guys in their mid-20s who do have that capability that they can recruit, and in this case, uh, escalated the DDoS attack to massive scale. The same, I think, is true for companies, that as we now see this proliferation of from half a dozen states to over 30 countries that want to develop offensive capabilities, we know that there is a marketplace out there where companies offer the full suite of tools of the cyber kill chain ranging from just selling you the tool that you need to gain access over to the actual payload that will cause a specific type of effect. Um, Some of that is more open, some of that is more on the dark web, um, but the market is clearly there. And so it's a mix of both trying to have plausible deniability and on the other hand, a lack of capability and there being a marketplace where you can purchase it.
1: So the United States has plenty of capability. So I presume because of that, we don't rely on proxies um, terribly much compared to our, uh, our colleagues in the international system, I, I presume, right?
2: So it def- it depends on how you define proxies. Usually proxies in the popular user usage are affiliated with something malicious, bad, and therefore you know we don't use them. I actually take a different approach in the book because part of the key message of the book is to highlight how important actors are that are not part of the state and that this ecosystem for offensive cyber capabilities, you can't just think about the government and the state itself. You also need to think about companies and individual hackers that can be recruited and in this case... Western countries, including the US, do rely on capabilities beyond the state. We do that in the conventional sphere as well. We have contractors, private security, military contracts uh, that we use for different types of uh, activities. The same is happening at cyber. Now, there's a clear distinction in that Uh, in in the US and in other Western countries, we have much more uh, stringent oversight requirement. Uh, They're essentially under the tight control of the government to also avoid potential escalation and accidents that could happen. Um, So there is a clear distinction to some of the other proxies other actors use. Um, But one of the key uh, pieces of information in the book is to highlight that this is not just states that have these capabilities, but they rely on others. and raising the question, how do we think of, about this holistically um, f- to avoid proliferation? Because it's clear that even criminals and independent groups that have nothing to do with the state could cause a significant amount of harm, especially on the trajectory we are on right now.
1: So go down that road a little more. What, what can we do to uh, mitigate this problem? Uh, are there actions we can take that, that'll just exacerbate it? Are there actions we can take that'll hopefully solve the problem?
2: solving the problem is, is a high bar let's uh, let's uh, at least try to avoid making it worse because for right now the last 10 years have not been not been good um the i think one of the key pieces is we learned a lot from the eternal blue vulnerability that got out of NSA and that was then used for some of the most impactful uh, malicious operations by by foreign actors since then so we clearly need to make sure that, one, the U.S. government keeps tight control of its own tools and avoid that they ever get out into the wild. Uh, if they do get out into the wild, uh, having a clear process to alert um, everybody very quickly so the the vulnerabilities can be patched. Uh, but it raises also a bigger question of how can we make sure that other countries that are developing the offensive their offensive tools have similar safeguards in place? Uh, because let me tell you, there are enough criminals out there who are just waiting to gain access to these vulnerabilities and use it for financial uh, gain. And if we look at the number of cyber crime that is already surpassing a lot of other conventional crime categories, just in terms of the money that's associated with it, uh, that's going to be a huge issue that we need to be thinking about. So that's that, that's number one. The second one is uh, we're still, I think, in the early days of actually creating resilient societies. The NIST framework is only a couple of years old. The Europeans have their NIS directive that individual EU member states are only now implementing. The Chinese cybersecurity law is only three years old. Um, So we are still like, as we are racing ahead in terms of using offensive capabilities on the defensive side and actually figuring out how to create resilient societies, it's still the early days. Uh, And that's partly what worries me that as we are now entering into a phase of uh, the cyber deterrence initiative that the White House announced, uh, the command vision for US Cyber Command outlining persistent engagement, defend forward, I actually believe that we need that component to more effectively deter malicious actors. But that only works if you've secured your glass house with a lot of steel around it to make sure you're no longer sitting in a glass house. And I'm not sure we are quite there yet. So I'm actually a little bit uh, worried about the short-term potential escalatory uh, risk that we are entering in the next two or three years. Uh, but I I'm, I hope we've done our homework so that uh, we, we won't see this happen.
0: What about at the international level, um, you know, uh, the United Nations is, uh, and and other International organizations are always looking for a new treaty to solve the world's problems. Um, Cyber is a tough one, though. But is there any hope for new international agreements that can um, do something about some of these threats?
2: Russia has been pushing for an international treaty on this since the late 1990s. Um, As you can imagine, Washington and most Western capitals have tried to avoid this outcome for for many years now. It got really interesting uh, recently because... (laughs) <laughs> um, a certain um, uh, Brad Smith, CEO of Microsoft, um, has been advocating for a digital Geneva Convention, making the case that we do need a treaty uh, for cyberspace because things have gotten so worse and uh, so bad, um, and they worsen uh, every year. Now, Microsoft has started to walk that back a bit partly because the international lawyers didn't like it, they love the G- Geneva Convention as it is. Um, but it shows that there's clearly more pressure. Uh, industry is clearly taking, spending a lot more time on this. Uh, there is the tech accord now, a consortium of industry uh, players. There's the Charter of trust for supply chain integrity. So pressure on governments to do more is clearly increasing. Uh, some actors are pushing for a treaty. Um, China, Russia, uh, several others. Uh, a lot of the liberal democracies are pushing back against that because they're worried that it's a Trojan horse to legitimize uh, censorship and control of information. Uh, and that's why the whole Microsoft initiative was kind of seen with with uh, from two perspectives. Um, and the UN is also quite active. In fact, after taking a short gap year after the process that was focusing on this, these issues collapse in 2017, they're now going to start with two processes in the fall. So we don't have just one, we will now have two. Um, it's unclear right now how those will interact, but uh, the discussion about norms, rules of the road for cyberspace is clearly going to continue. Uh, frankly, my sense is given where the geopolitics are at right now with the trade war relations with Russia, uh, the best that a lot of actors I think are hoping for right now is that two years from now we'll be at a point where we were in 2015 when the last report was agreed to and and moving forward then but that means five years of diplomatic activity uh, without a lot of progress while the security environment has continued to deteriorate quite significantly.
0: So you're saying it's it's not looking that good.
2: Great. On that happy note. Oh, on that happy note. Well,
0: on that happy note, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, man. That'll do it for today's episode. Um, We appreciate you being with us and to everyone out there for listening. If you like the show, uh, please find some time to give us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.